Hello, my friends. Welcome. My name is Joe. This is The Joe Martino Show. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a returning friend, welcome back. Uh, Lots to talk about today. So many different things that I wanted to talk about. My son will turn eight by the time this episode drops. Uh, I could talk about that and the grief that comes with that. Could talk about some nice emails. I got happy emails, but instead we're going to talk about the one skill you need to go from wherever you're at to wherever you want to go. It doesn't matter what other things you learn. If you don't have this to fortify it, it won't work. Let's kick it off. This is The Joe Martino Show. You're listening to The Joe Martino Show, a podcast dealing with all things emotional, relational, and human nature. Joe is a licensed counselor in the state of Michigan, specializing in relationship therapy. He is also the author of the book, The Emotionally Secure Couple. All advice offered in this episode is offered for entertainment and educational purposes only. Enjoy the show. All right, so welcome back, my friends. I hope you're having a good day. Uh, lots to talk about today. I want to talk about some emails that I got. I got some emails where like, hey, people were like, hey, we don't know about this email that you're getting where people disagree with what you're saying. We want you to know we agree with you, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate the emails from people who disagree with me. I would prefer that you not uh, call my kids' names uh, unless you know them and have specific evidence to support your claims. But other than that, I appreciate all the emails. Uh, got some wonderful Facebook messages. Appreciate those. A lot of different topics that I thought about talking about today. Obviously, we've been running out this idea of discipline and children, and we've been on a bit of a run there. I've thought about talking a little bit about the idea of do you discipline your children to avoid punishment, or do you discipline them or train them, is a word that I would prefer, train them to do the right thing and let the chips fall where they fall. And that's not the same thing. It's actually two very different approaches with two often very different uh, results for the adult that the child becomes. And and I see this in the room regularly. I can often guess how people were were disciplined as children, or at least the the thread behind the discipline. Even if they weren't disciplined, there's typically an intervention where the parent intervenes in the child's behaviors or consequences. Uh, about avoiding negative consequences, not about doing the right thing. Again, teaching someone to avoid negative consequences, it isn't the same as teaching them to choose the right thing. But we're going to talk about that another day. Uh, As my son would say, another day. Uh, He has a speech impediment. Uh, And then I thought about we could talk a little bit more about grief. My son turns eight. He's my youngest. And I'm grieving that. I'm grieving that he's turning eight, that I am two years away from no single-digit kids and that the changes that are coming for him in the next few years are amazing and wonderful and sad for me. My daughter started college. My middle daughter's about to get her license. Life is moving along well, and yet I'm sad. And I think one of the false conceptions that we have in society is that if we're if, if life is good, we can't be sad. In fact, we've come up with a virtue signaling, judgmental uh, conversation killer. Parents world problems. Parents world problems. Oh, you're worried about your daughter turning 18? Well, did you know the mortality rate of infants in Africa? Somebody literally said that to me. Can't make that up. Somebody literally said it to me. But we're not going to talk about grief or the crazy moronic responses that we have to other people's grief, such as first world problems. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, if you read the title, 
you probably know that we're going to talk about the skill that everyone needs no matter what. That's a pretty strange title, but it is it is truth. There is a skill that I, I've been thinking about this for probably six weeks on repeat. I uh, have been reading some, I call them 15-minute books. I've talked about them before. I read a ton of fiction. I enjoy reading fiction. I also enjoy reading nonfiction. Uh, and, and as part of just personal development, I make sure that I have a 15-minute book, a book that I read for 15 minutes every day. Actually, right now, it's not even fair to say I'm reading it. My Kindle is reading it to me, uh, which is kind of cool. And I thought about talking about my current book, which is uh, Fooled by Randomness, I think. It's, it's by a stock trader turned philosopher. And it seems to me, I'm about halfway through the book, that his entire theory, his, his philosophy about life is that everything is random. It just comes down to luck. And he's a bit nihilistic. And it'd be an interesting book to process. I did finish Educated, for those of you who... who uh, uh, listen to that episode. I'm actually going to write a review for it on my blog. If you're not getting my blog uh, articles, uh, you can go to joemartino.com. There's a subscribe button. Put in your email address. You're going to get uh, less than one a week. I typically send out about 37 a year. Uh, so that is is less than one a week. Um, but you are going to get some content there that we don't talk about here. Uh, content that some people have, have hopefully found helpful. And so I am going to review it. If, if JoeMartino.com, you can go to my blog. You can get notifications there. Uh, the article will literally show up into your email, typically the day after it posts on my website. Uh, and, and so I want to talk about that in, in that format. Maybe talk about it a little bit today when I get to what we're actually going to talk about, which we probably ought to get there. We're five minutes in. Uh, I want to talk about this skill that I've been thinking about for six weeks, even as I read that book about randomness, as I, I read uh, Tara Westover's book, you know, about her life, uh, I've watched two YouTube interviews with her. I've watched uh, um, or I've listened to a podcast interview with her and um, try, trying to better understand the appeal of this book. Because I got to be honest with you, I never found the hopefulness in the book. Um, it was just sad. I guess, well, okay, she got a PhD from Cambridge, and, and that's like the epitome of a philosopher's career. So, so there's hope there. Uh, but it's just incredibly sad. Her dad probably has multiple personality uh, disorders, not multiple personalities, multiple personality disorders. Her mom is probably PTSD with, with a few uh, personality disorders of her own. And it's just this incredibly sad story about how our brokenness affects each other and how our parents' brokenness affects us, how our brokenness affects our siblings, uh, how our siblings' brokenness affects us and our children. And uh, I have a lot of questions for, I don't know, is she married? I don't think she's married, for Miss Westover. Uh, regarding how she puts her life in the context of the world. I wonder, is she an atheist, an agnostic? Uh, she grew up in an incredibly abusive, extremely, uh, uh, extreme religious uh, end-of-the-world type home. And I actually think that that's part of what everybody likes about this book. There's a lot to dislike about the negative characters in the book. Uh, one of the things that 
uh, a friend of mine told me about was an interview where, where the interviewee interviewer had uh, had an obvious agenda, and it was to malign certain members of Westover's family. I haven't listened to that interview yet. I'm about to, uh, maybe today. Uh, but there's a lot to dislike in in the book, right? There's there's the patriarchy, and and certainly a lot of our society is down with the patriarchy. And, and there's religious people that are crazy, and I don't use that term lightly. I want you to know, but I mean, they the, the, you read the reviews, and, and there are people that talk about that. And and a lot of my uh, atheist friends are like, see, here's the proof that religion is inherently problematic. And someday I want to write a book called Hiding Behind God, What Happens When We Use God in Ways uh, He or She Never Promised Us. And, and, and I think that her family is a great story about how people hide behind God. Uh, so, so I got a lot of thoughts twirling about that. It, but even in reading that book, a friend of mine said, well, why are you finishing it if you don't like it? And I want to say that there are books I DNF, not a lot, but there are books that I'm just like, this isn't well-written, I'm done with it, I don't want to listen to it. But this book was not not well-written. It was actually very well-written. Uh, and so in order to finish it, and this is where we're going to get to what, what I want to talk about today, I had to endure distress. And, and I think that that skill is something that I am afraid we're losing in our society. I, I, I fear that we are at a place where anytime something is uncomfortable or hard, we assume that it needs to stop. And I don't think that that is either A, realistic, or B, healthy. As a result of this, what we do is we give ourselves, and I've talked about this in the past, but we give ourselves hall passes for poor behavior. Uh, just this week, I, I met a couple, and, and one person was just talking over the other person, was, was very um, strong in their words, in a way that is not helpful, was not kind, uh, talking over people, interrupting, getting loud, shouting, calling names. And I put, I said, well, you're not a very good communicator. And, and the response was, well, because I'm hurt. Irrelevant. Endure being hurt to be kind. And so one of the things that I talk with couples about, and usually the very first session of counseling with couples, certainly within the first three, is I talk about there are three steps to how a couple... One of the, to, to be able to engage in a, in a behavior on repeat that a couple must learn in order to be healthy. And the first step is de-escalate. They have to de-escalate themselves uh, from whatever it is that their brain's telling them to do in response to their hurt, in response to their frustration, in response to their negative emotion that isn't healthy. So they have to do a kind of a self-evaluation. All right, I'm hurt. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. And, 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 my body's response to that hurt, my brain's response to that hurt, that frustration, uh, that being upset, is that I want to call names, I want to be mean, I want to say hurtful things, and I shouldn't. <laughs> so I have to de-escalate myself to where I can tolerate the distress of knowing something is wrong. Step two is tolerate the distress, and we're gonna really camp out on this one uh, after we go over the, the three steps. But I have to tolerate the distress of, of, of knowing something's wrong, of knowing my wife's mad at me. Uh, she has to tolerate the distress of knowing I'm mad at her or she's mad at me, et cetera, et cetera. All right? And so you have to tolerate that unhappy place. One of the biggest reasons that we don't talk about our own maladies is because it brings up negative emotions and we're not good at de-escalating ourselves to the place where we can tolerate the distress 
of living in that pain. And then, and not before we do those two steps, if we do it before we do those two steps, we're, we're almost always doomed to failure, then we problem solve. Problem solving happens after you've de-escalated yourself and only after you've uh, found the way to tolerate the distress that you're in. Because good problem solving protects the relationship and solves the problem. And so as we embrace that moment where we are distressed, we are angry, we are frustrated, we are hurt, whatever it is, we have to tolerate the distress of those negative emotions. And so I see this play out a lot with couples. I see couples come in, I mean, literally week after week and they don't do their homework. Well, why don't they do their homework? Because they're not tolerating the distress. They're avoiding it. They're ignoring it. I see it with parents. A lot of the arguments that I get uh, for why I'm wrong about what about not spanking and about the type of, of parenting interventions that I believe are wrong, uh, a lot of the arguments that I get back are, well, it works. Well, but what does that mean that it works? And we've talked, we've talked a lot about what does it mean to define terms. But, but what does it mean that it works and what's the cost? One of the things that I appreciate, and see, you thought I was just going on an ADHD rant because I hadn't had my coffee yet. One of the things I appreciate about the book that I read is, is in the book he says something to the effect, this is paraphrased for, for intent, not word for word, uh, quote, not a word for word, quote. But he says that you can't just measure the rightness or wrongness of what we did based on success or results. You have to measure it on uh, the opposite. What would we? What would the opposite have looked like? So if we didn't fight World War II, what would the world look like? If we didn't uh, do this intervention this way with our children, what would the world look like? In other words, the cost and the outcome of the alternative also has to be factored into the right or wrong, which is why I brought up the whole, do we discipline our children? Do we motivate ourselves to do what's right? or to avoid negative consequences, because most of it's about negative consequences. And, and so, right, you can only do that after you've de-escalated yourself, after you've learned to tolerate the distress, and then you problem solve. The problem is most people try to problem solve by making the discomfort go away instead of processing it. And so, like I see it with couples, I see it with, with, with parents, I even see it with individuals in therapy who are stuck because they, they want the pain to go away as part of the being healthy process. And, and sometimes there are pains that don't go away. There are pains that we learn to live with. There are pains that other people inflict on us. And the only way to make them go away is to remove them from our lives. Or to greatly limit the impact that they can have on our lives. And so there is a lot of distress in how you become healthy. So think about this juxtaposition for a minute. People come to counseling, they want to get healthy, but one of their underlying assumptions, belief system boxes is that all discomfort is bad and they're going to a place where they're going to experience a lot of discomfort before they can get healthy and they have to experience the discomfort in order to get healthy. In fact, wherever you're at, whether you're going to counseling or not, no matter what you're trying to accomplish, if you're trying to affect change in your life, there's going to be discomfort. There's going to be, uh, in some cases, there's going to be very real, very visceral pain. And, and it's one of the things that sports, if done right, does teach us well. In order to get from where you are to where you want to go, you have to endure pain. Uh, incidentally, I was talking to somebody, I was, I was consulting with another therapist, 
and uh, he, he has a male client that just recently got divorced. Uh, the male client um, is not good at communicating. And he actually said to, to the therapist, he's like, I just don't know how to talk other than yelling. And I don't know why. And they got to pulling it back and they're pulling at strings. And, and the guy grew up with emotionally distant parents, but he was in sports all the time. And a lot of his coaches yelled. And he believes his coaches care for him. So in the absence of someone teaching him emotional language, he learned to yell. He learned to uh, bark, if you will, at people. Because that's right, you go up to the coach. I was a coach. I was coached by some really great guys. Uh, Whitey Edwards, if you're listening, uh, you're still the man. Uh, and, and they would yell. And they didn't spend a lot of time on emotional language. And so now this, this therapist, this colleague's client, is an adult with, with four kids, and he doesn't know how to talk to them uh, emotionally. He doesn't know how to engage their emotional side of their brains. And he wants to learn it. And, and the struggle came that the, the therapist was like, he's very resistant to failing at it with his kids. He's, and, and I said, well, what's he resistant to about the failing? He finds it painful. And I said to the therapist, well, that is the art of therapy, convincing them that the pain is worth it. That the pain that you're going to experience failing, trying to learn emotional language with your kids is worth it. At almost every point in therapy, almost every person that I've ever met with, there comes a point, well, that's not true, every person, but for people who it goes longer, there comes a point where they are stuck, not because they don't know what to do, but because they can't get their brain around the potential pain of getting better. They can't tolerate the distress. So think about the couple that's stuck that isn't doing homework. Why are they stuck? Why are they not doing homework? Well, because there's risk involved there. There's pain. There is a a moment where they could get hurt, right? So, you know, one of the things, let's say that they're not connected. One of the things that we do in couples therapy is we endeavor to help the clients come up with a process where they can have more positive experiences than negative ones. But in order to do that, you have to reach out. So when like the homework might be, hey, go on walks this week or have sex this week or snuggle naked this week or uh, tell each other every day something you appreciate about the other person face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. But in order to do that, you have to risk pain. Now, you're not necessarily in pain doing it, but the, the possibility of pain is there and people have to endure that distress. Most of the rules that I hear about parenting where I'm like, what are you doing? Are about people trying to control things to avoid distress. Almost every tech rule I've ever heard where people are like, we don't allow screens. It's about control. It's about taking away consequences it's about taking away the consequence of running the risk of ha- of, of failing your kids because we don't want to screw our kids up, right? So uh, just recently, somebody told me, well, our kids don't get screen time during the week. Oh, why not? Well, because if I let them watch screen time, they'll tell me they did their homework and they won't and they'll wake up the next morning all stressed. So why don't you just discipline the lie? Like, wouldn't that be better? Well, it's less headache. Oh, we can spell headache, D-I-S-T-R-E-S-S, distress. And if you want to move forward, if you want to teach your children to regulate themselves, if you want to regulate yourself, you're going to have to embrace this idea of self-regulation through distress.
stress. I had a client one time who came to me and his complaint was his wife didn't want to have sex with him. And so I was like, okay. And honestly, by all metrics that I could see, obviously they live their lives. I get it in an hour clip each week. But by all metrics that I could see, they were in a pretty good place, except their sex life sucked. And so I said to myself, well, the problem is you're not actually pursuing her. You're very good at providing. You're a great dad. You're good at pursuing your children. You're good at making sure the house is clean when you're the one home and you help her uh, with things that she asks you to help her with and she helps you with things that you ask her to help her with. But you're not actually pursuing her. You even go on dates, which is awesome. But you've not spoke to her insecurities. And so I said, here's the plan. And I laid it out. And he looked at me. He's like, that won't work. Well, why won't it work? Well, because she won't like that. Like, so you're saying your wife won't like it if you flirt with her. Notice there's good mirroring there. Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Okay, and why won't she like it if you flirt with her? Well, I've done it in the past and, and it hasn't worked. Well, okay, what do you mean it hasn't worked? Well, we didn't have sex that night. Okay, well, what if you just flirted with her and pursued her because it mattered? So like, get her flowers. Well, she won't like that. She wants to save money. I mean, you can get flowers for five bucks, dude. Tell, tell her that you didn't eat lunch today. Don't eat lunch. Save your five bucks from lunch and go buy her flowers. Or get her a candy bar then. That's a buck fifty. Well, she doesn't like that because she wants to work out. Okay, there's something she likes that you is inexpensive that's a little token of appreciation that you can give her. No, there isn't. Now, I'll do that dance with a client for one, maybe two sessions. And then I'll point out the reality is that you're not sure that this will work because you're afraid of the distress, of the pain that might come from rejection. So just hold her hand. That doesn't cost any money. Well, she'll pull it away. Okay. If you hold it for over 20 seconds, you get an oxytocin dump. Get enough oxytocin dumps, you want to have sex. It's just how biology works. And so then we spent three weeks, so three hours, talking about tolerating distress in relationships, talking about what does it mean to be a spouse and tolerate the distress of reaching out to your spouse, be a husband and tolerate the distress of reaching out to your wife. And on the third week, he said, all right, I'm going to try it. Came back the next week, nothing changed. And we kept talking and talking for six weeks. And finally, he's like, it's amazing. Everything's different. Right. Because you tolerated the distress. But now there's new stress to tolerate because you might lose what you have. And that will be painful. So there's new stress to tolerate. Talked to a guy one time who hated his job. His boss uh, may have had some sort of personality disorder. I never met the boss. I want to be really careful on that. But the stories, as I got them, were, uh, I mean, even for me, and I'm pretty hard to shock. Some of them were, uh, they were pretty hard for me to believe. But the guy stayed where he was because he was terrified to try to get a different job. He was terrified to, to, to make a risk. He was terrified to tolerate the distress of applying for a job and realizing he might get, be, get rejected. And so this tolerate distress, part of this is, yes, we have to tolerate the distress of knowing that people are mad at us, that our kids might be mad at us, that our wife might be mad at us, our husband. But there's also tolerating the distress of potential future pain. This is one of the things that makes forgiveness so hard because we get hurt and we try to control the inevitability of getting hurt again by making it so we can't get hurt rather than tolerating the distress that says, I know I can get hurt. The only path to wholeness, to health, uh, to healthiness and, and wellness. I tried to say wellness and healthiness. They're together at once. That's why that one word got a little hung up. But the only path to those things is through 
tolerating the distress, the vulnerability of the possibility of being hurt again. And in a society where anybody who criticizes you, think about this, why can't we have conversations about disagreements, about parenting? Why can't we say to each other without calling each other's kids' names, hey, I think that you are wrong here. Why can't we have that conversation? Because what the person hears is pain and distress. You're saying I'm screwing up my kids. You're saying I'm wrong. You're saying I'm doing something. I'm not going to screw up my kids. I'm not going to cause them pain. And we lose our minds because anyone who disagrees with us is a hater, obviously. Uh, I was I was talking to someone this week who was very upset with her husband because she went to the shooting range. Uh, I didn't tell him. Uh, her and her girlfriends went and she was shooting. And he said to her, uh, your form there is actually a little bit dangerous and you should have shooting goggles on. And why can't he just be happy that she went to the shooting range? I'm like, well, are, are those mutually exclusive? Can he be happy that you went to the shooting range and be concerned that you don't have shooting goggles on or glasses on? And your husband is kind of an expert in shooting, right? Yep. And so when he says, hey, your, your form here could leave you open to injury, uh, I've shot a lot. I'd like to know what the form was, but but don't you think maybe that would be something you could ask him? Well, he could have said, hey, I'm glad you went. Okay, I don't disagree with that. He could have led with that. But again, the fact that he didn't does just means you have to tolerate the distress. If you want health, you'll have to tolerate the distress of the potential criticism. So somebody says, hey, uh, I think this about you. Okay, tell me more about it. And I'm going to have to sit there and learn to tolerate the distress. So I finished the Westover book in tolerating the distress. And I read other books while I read it. I took breaks from it, but I kept coming back to it to finish it because yes, it was distressing, but I needed to finish it so that I could actually, I was kind of committed publicly now, I'm going to have to give an opinion on this thing. And, and I had thoughts twirling in my head about it anyhow. And so there's distress there. If I want to get healthier physically, I have to tolerate the distress of wanting a Reese's peanut butter cup or more accurately a Hershey's bar with almonds and instead eating an apple. Those are, now, I, right? But even that, we can, we can use physical fitness to try to pretend that we're not distressed. If you want healthy relationships, if you want a healthy relationship with yourself, if you want to have better conversations with people, you'll have to tolerate distress. Most parents learn this at some level. And the problem is, and we know this, think about the people who never engage their kids. Why do they do that? Because they're trying to avoid distress. Think about the people that over-engage their kids. What are they trying to do? They're trying to avoid the distress. What do we do when we're distressed? That's the question that I want to leave you with today. What do you do when you're distressed? You and your husband are having an argument. What do you do with that distress? The client that took us almost nine weeks to see uh, uh, change in his relationship. And his wife was not coming. I want to point that out. He was coming. One of the things that is, is, can be true is the relationship narrative can change by simply one person making a concerted effort to do something different over a longer period of time. I'm going to say that again. A, a relationship narrative can change simply by one person making a concerted effort to make change over an extended period of time. Now, not always. Sometimes there are people and they are married to toxic people who, who need to get into therapy and get some help and get some interventions. Uh, and I get that. 
Uh, I'm not arguing for you to stay with an abuser. I'm not arguing for anything like that. But if, if there is a baseline of healthiness, the overall narrative of the relationship can change if one person makes a concerted effort to change over an extended period of time. Also, there are times where that's still, the, maybe the relationship isn't healthy. Maybe there's a couple where the husband is completely disconnected. He's mean to the wife. Well, she's going to have to decide a few things, right? Like, what is he mean or is he verbally abusive? Those are two different things. Is he gaslighting me? That's a different thing. And then sometimes the concerted effort at change over an extended period of time creates enough change that the person's willing to go get therapy. And sometimes it doesn't, and then we have to make other choices and, and tolerate other distressors. If you're constantly, if you're like, I don't know why I can't tell people no, this would be a good place for you to jump off and start. Maybe it's because you don't tolerate distress well. If you're not good at enforcing boundaries, maybe it's because you don't have expectations. See uh, previous episodes. Or maybe it's because you don't tolerate distress well. Right? So, so the skill that I want you to think about, how are you tolerating distress? How well are you doing it? Are you doing things that are distressful? Now, here's something to consider, and this could probably be a whole nother episode. Simply because you're distressed doesn't mean you're tolerating it. One of the things that I, that I point out, especially to couples, like, so couples who don't do their homework, one of the things I'll regularly point out to them is you're doing this because you're trying to avoid the distress of the possibility of being hurt. But in reality, you're still being hurt and you're still in distress. You're not tolerating distress in a healthy way. You're just coexisting with it. So, so that's something you'll have to pull out. But how are you tolerating distress? Does distress keep you from doing the things that you know you need to do to be healthy? If so, why? And how might you do it better? These are the questions to start asking yourself. Okay, so that's today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, please share this with your friends. Share it on your social media. Uh, I can't tell you how important that is for somebody like me who, I mean, I'm literally, I'm sitting in my office. I got my computer and just this little setup here. Uh, you know, we're not a big budget company here. And, and so and any help that you can give is truly appreciated. It's so helpful when people share it via uh, their own means of communication with their friends. Uh, lots of exciting things happening. I'm meeting more and more people who are reading the book. We're going to uh, continue working on the book. I'm, I'm actually debating stopping the book that I'm working on writing a different book and then coming back to this one. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that some week. Which one would you rather read? Uh, we are working on a bunch of other stuff that we're hoping to release here in the very near future. Uh, if, again, if you do want to get my blog articles and you're not, go to joemartino.com. Scroll down. I believe just above the fold is the is the button where it says subscribe. You put in your email. You get an email to verify that you did it. And then once a week, uh, about 37 times a year, if you look at my averages, you will get a, uh, you'll get an article right to your email with different content than the podcast. Sometimes they relate. Uh, all right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with a friend. And hey, give us that rating in your podcast store. Until next time, change possible.